Well, good morning again, and uh, thank you for being here. It's summer. Anybody else excited that it's summer? Yeah, there's no more snow. Now we're just mowing grass. It's great. But, and with summer comes, it seems like week after week after week of kids' events. And so before we dive into the sermon today, I want to spend some time in prayer. And I'm going to give you some things to pray for. And we're going to spend a couple of moments just silently in prayer. And then I'll close this up. So a couple of things when you think about kids' ministry. This is totally unscripted, so sorry, tech guys. Here we go. First, we just sent all of our middle school kids to camp this morning. They're on the road. So we want to pay for safe travel. But beyond that, we want to pray that they have an encounter with Jesus while they're there that their lives change while they spend time at Miracle Camp and that it doesn't become a place of nostalgia, but it becomes a place where lives changed. They get back just in time to volunteer at cross-training next week. And so please be praying for all the kids who are going to be in this place that they hear the gospel clearly communicated, that their friends feel like this is a place where it's safe to be and that we can do that for them. And then right after that, our high school kids go up to Miracle Camp. And so our prayer for them would be exactly the same. That that is an opportunity to grow deeper in their relationship with Jesus. Deeper in their understanding of how much he loves them. And that they form relational bonds that will hold them to the church in the time that they're there. And then staffing-wise, we have lots of transitions going on. You know about those. But I want to ask you to pray. Tara is in her final. They are nine days until Tara and Michael and the Lindsay family show up here. And so be praying for them as they say goodbyes. Goodbyes are hard as they pack, as they travel. Be praying for Paul, our new discipleship pastor, as he wraps up his time at Samaritan Ministries. And then I'm also going to ask you to pray this next weekend. We have a new worship candidate coming in. And pray for wisdom for the leaders of the church as we seek for that. So those are six things that are pretty big that I think you as a congregation need to know about and be praying for. And I want to give us time right now before we dive into God's word this morning to pray for that. So if you're new and you're like, prayer's weird, I don't want to do it, that's fine. Just, I'll give you a secret. Just bow your head, close your eyes, nobody will know. But if you want to, if you want to venture out and pray for the first time, it's just a conversation with a God who loves you. And maybe what you need to ask in this time is, God, speak to me today. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the ways that you have blessed us. Blessed us beyond what we deserve. Blessed us beyond what we've earned. But God, in your grace and your mercy, you've blessed us. God, we pray for each and every one of these kids' events. God, we don't do these things haphazardly. They're not just randomly thrown on the calendar to entertain our kids. But God, we pray that each and every one of these things helps our kids see that their faith can be real, that there is a God who wants to know them, who does know them, and wants to relationship with them. God, I pray for safety in all of the activities that are going on, but God, I pray for safety so that nothing distracts them from hearing your word, from hearing the truth of a gospel that says you sent your son to die for them because you love them that much. And God, as we transition, I pray for those new staff that are coming in. 
God, I pray for great chemistry amongst the team. I pray for all the details of the moves and the transitions to fall into place and to move seamlessly. And God, all that we do, kids' activities, staff, everything we do, we want that to be about helping people take their next step towards Jesus. God, we want to be a place that welcomes everybody and helps them grow, helps them understand. And so God, do your work in our hearts, in our minds. Through the truth of your word this morning, we ask that you speak. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so one of the most common questions we ask when we meet somebody new is, what do you do? Right? And then we, we, you can imagine this scene. I don't think it's too far-fetched. You're at an event with your spouse. Maybe it's, their, maybe it's their work party or it's a block party in your neighborhood and everybody's getting together. And the question comes, hey, I'm Jason. Yeah, I'm Mike. And what do you do, Mike? Right? And we've had this exchange and everybody begins to share what they do for work. This might be one of my absolute least favorite questions. Because the minute I say, hi, I'm Jason, and I'm a pastor, everybody goes, ooh. <laughs> I never forget, I was playing golf with this guy one time in St. Louis. We're playing nine holes. I showed up, and they, these two buddies showed up, and they're going to play. And they're like, hey, can we play golf with you? And I was like, sure. He's like, my name's whatever his name was. It was 20 years ago now. I don't remember. And I was like, hey, I'm Jason. He's like, oh, what do you do for work? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. And he goes, a man of the cloth. I was like, I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't even know. And he goes, well, I won't use my normal golf words. And that's what I hate about it. It changes our interaction. So I've learned to say, hey, I'm Jason. I'm a public speaker. <laughs> or I used to say when I was in youth ministry, hey, I'm Jason. I hang out with teenagers in a non-creepy way. <laughs> to keep the conversation going. You see, what we do for work no matter what it is, it matters. And if you missed last week, you're joining us in week two of a series that we've titled 90,000. And that number is significant because it's the average number of hours we work in our lifetime. And anytime we spend that much time doing something, we need to stop and consider how the gospel, the message of grace and hope through Jesus on the cross, impacts the way we do that. So how does the gospel impact my work? How does it impact my work as a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad? How does it impact my work when I go to the office? How does it impact my work when I log on to a Zoom call in my new homemade office that I made two years ago and it's still there? How does it impact what we do over these next five weeks? That's the question we're trying to get at. That's the answer we're trying to figure out. Last week, we looked at this idea that we're created for work and that work was part of God's original creation, but that all of that fell apart when the fall happened in Genesis chapter 3. Ever since then, work has been broken. Our view of work is distorted, and that means it affects not only our relationship with work, but our relationship with God and our relationship with others as we go about our work. And so this morning, I want us to dig into one of the biggest ways I think work is broken. And we'll do that by unpacking this truth. Work becomes an idol when it becomes our source of identity. 
Work becomes an idol when it becomes our source of identity. Now, in order to help us unpack that statement, I want to ask you to pull out your Bibles or your phones. You can open to Exodus chapter 20. And if you're new to Great Oaks this week, I want you to know that every week, this is what we teach from. This is the text that we believe in, and we believe everyone needs to hear the life-changing truth of God's word. And so that's why when you come and you attend, this will be the book we teach from. So we're starting in Exodus chapter 20. If you're looking that up in a paper Bible, it's the second book. You don't have to go too far in the back. Genesis, Exodus, you get to Leviticus, you've gone too far, and you'll read some really weird laws in there. So go back to Exodus. It'll be great. And I want to set some context for the story, because if you're new to this, this seems like a, just kind of an out-of-the-blue thing. But if you're, so in Exodus chapter 1, God's people, the Israelites, he's called them to be his people in Genesis chapter 12, are in slavery in Egypt. And this is brutal slavery. It says in, in Exodus chapter 1 twice that the, um, the Egyptians were brutal and ruthless in the way that they treated the Israelites. They made their lives bitter. And into that slavery, God brings a guy named Moses. He gets born there, raised by Pharaoh, run, ends up killing an Egyptian and runs and flees for his life to the desert where God meets him in a bush that catches fire and doesn't burn up, right? That would catch our attention. A bush that's burning and not burning up, I'd be like, well, what's going on over there? So Moses walks over and God says, I want you to go back to Egypt. You're going to be the one I use to set my people free. And Moses comes up with a few excuses and God answers every one of them and he heads back to Egypt. And he, God uses Moses through plagues to set the Israelites free. After the last plague, Pharaoh says, fine, go. And so the Israelites flee Egypt. They flee their slavery to go to a land God has promised to them. But as they're fleeing, they come across the Red Sea. And they're like, uh, we have a lot of stuff, and our animals can't swim. And all of a sudden, they hear the thundering of horse hooves behind them. Because Pharaoh's changed his mind. And he's coming after them. And as they get to that sea, it opens. And God does what only God can do in this moment. He not only opens it, because we've all stepped in like the riverbank, right? You step down, and what's it feel like? You go like knee deep in mud, and you're stuck. God opens the sea, dries the ground, and the Israelites walk across on dry ground. And just as Pharaoh's army gets into the sea, God closes the water and the Israelites are free. But that's just begun their journey. Now they're going to journey through the wilderness to get to this promised land. And like all of us, the Israelites are a little whiny, right? Anybody care to admit that you have whiny days? All right. Wives, I won't ask you about man colds or anything like that. Chase will tell you I've been whiny the last couple weeks because I hurt my knee. And he's like, would you just get over it? We all get a little whiny, right? The Israelites get a little whiny. They get out into the desert and they're hungry. And they're like, we want to go back to Egypt. Back to slavery because there we had food to eat. Hold on, time out. Don't miss this, because this is ridiculous. They want to go back to be whipped by Pharaoh. 
They want to go back to making bricks without straw. They want to go back to lack of freedom. They want to go back to slavery. Why? Because they're hungry. Anybody? Like, I mean, I read that story and I'm like, I don't think I'm crazy to think that I could go with a little hunger to be free. But that's where they are. They want to go back. God is leading them. Pillar of cloud by day. Pillar of fire by night. They see his presence as a constant reminder that he's with them. And we're hungry and we want to go back. And God goes, all right, I'll, I'll take care of you. They go to bed that night. They wake up the next morning. There's manna on the ground. Manna is like this flaky bread that lands out on the ground. They go out and they pick it up. And they're like, well, we had meat in Egypt. Seriously, people? Do you ever think God is just like, what is your problem? And so he sends quail for them to eat. And so they walk a little bit further. This is Exodus chapter 14, if you want to follow along there. Then Exodus chapter 16, they're thirsty. I'm sorry, it's Exodus 16, they're thirsty. It must be 17 or 18. They're, or they're hungry in 16. It must be 17 or 18, they're hungry. Or they're thirsty. And so I can't, I'm, I've now lost it. Oh my gosh. So they're, they're out there, they want something to drink. And Moses prays and God says, hit the rock and I'll bring water from it. Again, there's some things I read in the Bible and I'm like, how would I respond to that? God, I know a lot of things about earth. I don't think water comes from rocks. But okay, you said to him. So Moses strikes the rock and fresh water comes out and they get a drink. At Exodus chapter 19, after three months of wandering in the desert, they come to Mount Sinai. And God says, Moses, I need you to come up to the top of the mountain. I need you to make sure the Israelites don't touch the mountain because I am going to come down and I am going to land on that mountain and I'm going to give you what we now know are the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, we can misconstrue this all the time, right? We look at that and we go, oh, well, that's the list of things they can't do, right? The Ten Commandments are just ten things the Israelites aren't supposed to do. God's heart in this, go all the way back to where we were last week in Genesis chapter 1. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden and he had a relationship with them. The heart of the Ten Commandments is God saying to the Israelites, I want a relationship with you. I want you to be my people. I want to be your God. I want to be in relationship with you. And these 10 things are how we'll live in relationship with each other. It is the repetitive story of the Old Testament that God continually shows up when the Israelites rebel and says, hey, listen, here's how I want to live in relationship with you. Do these things. And they do them and everything's great. And then that generation dies and they don't do them. And everything's not great. And then it's this repetitive cycle all the way through the Old Testament. But God gives these Ten Commandments so that they know how to live. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And some of you are like, I thought we were talking about work. How does the Ten Commandments tie to my work? Stick with me. I think you'll see. Exodus chapter 1, verse five, verses 1 through 5. When God gave the people all these instructions... I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in heaven or on earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. 
Why would God start the Ten Commandments with a command to not have any other gods before him and a command to not worship other gods? I think maybe there's nothing more important, and God wants to make this clear, there's nothing more important in our lives than that God be first, than that God be the center, God be the middle in everything we're about. He wanted the Israelites to turn and keep him at the center of their relationship. The reformer Martin Luther argued that because we don't break any other commands without first committing idolatry. You can't break any other Ten Commandments according to Martin Luther without first breaking idolatry. Why do we lie? Because I've taken God out of the center of my life and I've replaced it with something else. Now in 2022, we don't think a lot in the West about idolatry, right? It's not like you drive down 116 and there are giant idols all along 116 that you bow down and worship to another religion. We don't see these things in front of us but I think idols are all around us. They're not just little statues of tiki gods. They're not just things that we bow down and worship. Anything we serve and derive meaning from apart from God becomes an idol. Idols are much more and much different than little stone gods we worship or little statues of Buddha we put in our house. Again, Martin Luther says, looking to a created thing to give you what only God can give you is idolatry. Listen to the words of the prophet Ezekiel spoken in Ezekiel 14. Then some of the leaders of Israel visited me, and while they were sitting with me, this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, these leaders have set up idols in their hearts. They have embraced things that will make them fall into sin. Why should I listen to the requests? Tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Israel have set up idols in their hearts and have fallen into sin. And then they go to the prophet asking for a message. So I, the Lord, give them this kind of answer to their great idolatry deserves. I will do this to capture the minds and hearts of all my people who have turned from me to worship their detestable idols. Therefore, tell the people of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, repent and turn away from your idols and stop all your detestable sins. You see, idols aren't just exterior things. They're anything that we allow into our lives into our hearts that takes root and becomes the center of what our lives work around. They can be really good things. We make idols out of good things all the time. And we do that when, or idolatry happens when we turn a good thing into a God thing. Idolatry happens when we turn a good thing into a God thing. Think about this. It's a good thing that our students aim to graduate with 4.0 at the top of their classes. That's a good thing to strive for. It becomes a God thing when they secretly wonder if they have any worth after getting a B on the first exam. Their identity, their center of their world is that GPA, 
not the God who loves them no matter what the GPA is. It's a good thing that an athlete strives to overcome obstacles, trains hard to be the best they can at their sport. It becomes a God thing when that happens at the expense of relationships, when that becomes their number one and only priority. Then it becomes a God thing. It's a good thing that our kids graduate college, go off and get jobs, and work to earn that first promotion. It becomes a God thing when they feel immediately unsatisfied and begin to want more and more and more and push everything else to the side. Then it becomes a God thing. It's a good thing that we as moms and dads work hard to provide for our families to plan for retirement and enjoy life. It's a God thing when there's never enough money. It's a God thing when we work so hard we never take a vacation. It's a God thing when our source of enjoyment comes from our success at work and not our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So here's my question for you this morning. And the one we're going to dig into a little bit, has work become the idol living in your heart? Has work become the idol living in my heart? Has God's good gift of work become the center of our life? And have we made God's good gift our God thing? Are we worshiping the gift instead of the giver of that gift? You see, because work becomes an idol when it becomes our source of identity. I want to dig into that identity piece just a little bit now. Wrapping our identity in work is not something new. It's not something just tied to the American culture or something that's just new. Think about this. The most popular surnames or last names in Germany, Switzerland, are Mueller. While in the Ukraine, it's Melnik. All of these words mean Miller, an occupation. In Slovakia, the most common last name is Varga, a word for cobbler. Not the like peach and blackberry kind that we love to eat, but the guy who makes your shoes. In the United States, in the UK, in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, the most common last name is Smith. Blacksmith, silversmith, locksmith, gunsmith. These names were given based on what people did. And all the way from the Middle Ages up until now, a person's job actually tied right to their identity. Now, we don't literally take on the last name. I'm not Jason Pastor. That'd be weird. But today we struggle in this way, I think, with a term that a lot of psychologists call enmeshment. And enmeshment is where our boundaries between work and personal life get blurred. And I think it's, it's important for us to understand this because when this happens is when work becomes our identity and when work becomes our idol. So how do you know if you're enmeshed in work? If work's become too much, if work's sitting at the center, do you find yourself thinking about work even when you aren't there? 
Do you find yourself bringing up your job within the first three minutes of every conversation? Not in a like, this is what I do kind of way, but like a, this is what's happening at work kind of way. Do you allow your job to eat up your time and identity, leaving less time for hobbies and interests? How are you doing it breaking away and doing the things you love to do, not just the things you're paid to do? If you're enmeshed, it makes it harder to connect with people who you don't work with. How many friends do you have outside of work? How are your relationships with your neighbors? How's my relationship with my neighbor? And when we're fully enmeshed, we allow our job to determine our value. Ann Wilson says this, if you tie your self-worth to your career and the successes, failures, and experience will directly affect your self-worth. And because we live in a society where careers are less likely to be lifelong, we switch. If we switch, we find ourselves without a job. It can also become an identity crisis. If you lost your job today, where would your identity be? I'll tell you, I had to walk through this. For 10 years of my life, I was a youth pastor. That's what I did. My dad would introduce, you, introduce me with great pride to everyone he met. This is my son. He's the pastor. And you begin to wear that, and you're like, yeah, that's what I do. And then all of a sudden, I stepped out of ministry. And here I was. Somebody who successfully led ministries for 10 years with a private school degree and I was the voice on the other end of the drive through speaker. That will mess with you. I can't tell you how many days I sat, poor Mocha gets picked on, I swear I like Mochas, but they get picked on in my sermon. I can't tell you how many days I sat making Mocha wondering what's happened to my life. Is this really who I am? I remember going to Corey's job parties, her like Christmas party with the, ch- the school staff and everything. And everybody knew I was the youth pastor. And all of a sudden, the first year I went, and now I'm the barista. I avoided conversations more that year. My identity had been wrapped up in what I did. Scripture teaches us that we should work hard and work to be approved, but the difference in that is that it's not our source of identity. The gospel reminds us where we find our identity. And if we're going to break the idolatry of work, if we're going to take work and we're going to say, you are no longer an idol, I'm moving you out and I'm moving God to the middle of my life, we have to remember who God says we are and who the gospel says we are. Take a look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. And he has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he's planned for us long ago. This is one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture. 
you and I are saved by grace. Not because we've done anything that does deserve an amen. Not because of anything we've done, but because of who God sees us as. And did you catch that? God sees us as his masterpiece. I am not an art aficionado. By any sense of the imagination, I am not an art aficionado. But when I see a piece of art that is breathtaking, you stop and you look. And maybe the first piece of art I ever saw that really did this for me is a painting called A Walk in the Park. And if you've ever been to the Chicago Art Institute, you've seen this painting. I'm going to ask you guys to leave it up there for a minute. This painting is probably as big as that screen. It's like 12 feet by 10 feet. It's huge. And if you've ever seen this painting, it's done by dots. So everything you are looking at is an artist taking a pen and making a dot on the canvas to paint this picture. Meticulous about where every dot goes, which color goes where, how it works to create that image. God looks at you and he looks at me and he says, you are my masterpiece. Every piece put in place exactly where I wanted it, exactly how I wanted it. The good and the bad, the flaws we see in ourselves, God looks at us and says, I don't see that, you're my masterpiece. And I've knit you together with the personality, with the skill set, with the gifts to do the good works I have prepared for you. You see, my work comes out of who God says I am. And God says, I'm his masterpiece. Combine this with the truth of last week that we're created in God's image. And all of a sudden, my identity becomes way deeper and way more important than work could ever make it. The truth is, Work makes a really crummy identity. Because what happens when you change jobs? If work's your identity, what happens when you change jobs? What happens when you fail to meet a goal at work? If that's your identity, if that's the center of your world, and you fail to meet that goal, everything crumbles. What happens if you worked for that promotion and you don't get it? If work is your identity, things become, begin to fall apart. Worst of all, what happens when you get fired? If work is your identity. But you see, when we keep God at the center of our lives, when key, we keep him there and we worship him, we lose our job and we go, I don't know exactly what all this is going to mean. I don't know exactly how we're going to get through, but I know this. I am still God's masterpiece. God is still in control. And we should see this differently. You see, whether we spend our working hours taking care of kids, studying for a test, punching a clock, or competing in a sport, it matters how and why we do it. Fuller psychologist Benjamin Holtberg is an expert in youth development. And he says this idea of performance-based, what I do in work determines my value. 
It reveals that our culture's focus on winning and losing is negatively affecting our young people's identity. He says that this mindset of performance-based identities is ultimately leading to failure, perfectionism, and a fear of disappointing others. Have you spent any time with someone under the age of 25 lately? We see this all over them, but I think we see it all over their lives because they've learned it from the generation ahead of them. You see, when love and acceptance are built on such unstable foundations, our coping mechanisms become blame, shame, and control to protect our fragile identities. But when our identity is rooted in who God says we are, we're reminded that we're his sons and daughters. And all of a sudden, there's a sense of peace that comes with this identity. Listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Because we are united with Christ, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family, to bring us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He showered us with his kindness along with wisdom and understanding. You could preach weeks and weeks on these verses. But did you catch what God says about you and I in these verses? If we're followers of Christ, we are blessed. You are loved, chosen. Because of what God's son did on the cross for you, he finds no fault. You were adopted into his family. Purchased at the cost of his son's life, forgiven. Take a look at that list. Did you see anything on there that we do? Not one thing. God says who you are. And God says these seven things about us because he wanted to. He didn't have to. No one forced him to. God says, this is who you are, and I want you to know this. For Paul, being precedes doing. Who we are is way more important than what we do. God does not base our identity on what we do, but on who he says we are. However, once we understand who God says we are, we're able to live into what he has for us. Work becomes an idol when it becomes our source of identity. Where's your identity? Work is what we're made to do. It's a healthy part of our identity as long as we remember that it's a good thing. The God thing is who God says we are based on what he has done. When we allow work to become the to become not the good but the God thing we do, work becomes an idol. 
When this happens, we've stepped outside of God's good plan for work and need people in our lives who can speak truth and love to call us to repent, like the prophet Ezekiel said, to turn from where we're going, to turn back, to take that idol out of the center of our life and to put God back in there. Do you have people in your life who are speaking that truth into you? People who can say to you, you've got a good thing, not a God thing in the center of your life. The gospel provides the foundation of who we are and what we're called to do. And each and every one of us, we believe here at Great Oaks has another step to take in their relationship with Jesus. And so as you think about what that step is that you need to take this week, I want to encourage you as you go through your week to pause a couple of times and ask yourself this question. How is my identity based on how I perform and how others perceive me instead of on who Jesus says I am? That question is true. Whether your work hours are spent in retirement, volunteering, and helping others, whether your work hours are spent raising a kid or multiple kids or your work hours this week are on vacation because your kid's at camp and you're super excited about that. That's where my family is this week. (laughs) Or because you're going to an office and you're caring for people. How is our identity based on how we perform and how others perceive us instead of on who Jesus says we are? Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we mess this up all the time. We make an idol out of our work because it becomes who we are. We forget who you've said we are. And God, we focus on who others say we are or on who we want them to believe we are. God, we thank you for your grace that extends to us, that offers us forgiveness. God, this week, may we see our work as one more way to reflect who you say we are to a world who needs to know who you say they are. And God, may we live these 90,000 hours that you've given us to work for your glory as your creation and in comfort that you have our back and that we're never alone. God, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.